Okay, uh, let's begin with prayer, as we always do. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you rejoicing that we are so honored to be able to gather in your name, to open up the scriptures together, to search the glories of our mutual salvation, to be warned, to be encouraged, to be exhorted, to be comforted from your word. And Lord, our prayers also go out to dear brothers and sisters who listen on the internet or of the world. We pray for them, for their well-being, that you would bless them. And may the word speak loudly in their lives and also. And give us wisdom and understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to a new chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Let me read a ways into this here to give us the overview. Remember, the topic is New Covenant Ministry. New Covenant Ministry. And Paul, in chapter 3, had a long analogy between Moses and the veil and the hardening in the Old Covenant and the openness and um, the light of the Gospel and the the liberty in, in in freedom there is under the New Covenant. So, the therefore, in chapter 4, on the heels of what we learned about New Covenant ministry and the Holy Spirit giving liberty and unveiling people's hearts as they turn to the Lord and the glory of this ministry, then we have therefore. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, Paul has obviously hasn't totally dropped this veiled analogy that we talked about so much in, in chapter 3. He, he goes back to it one more time. Okay, And so what he is saying, this is a very, very important section of Scripture, and I can't imagine anything more pertinent as far as the time that we live in is this section here. And what Paul is saying is that he makes sure, because we have this new covenant ministry that is the power of the Holy Spirit to bring liberty to those who turn to the Lord and to show the glory of Uh, of God in the face of Christ, because we have this, Paul has to be very careful, and so do all of us, to make sure that we don't do anything to veil it. Okay, Because it's not veiled by its nature, it's the open proclamation of the truth. So if Paul were to um, do these things that he's renounced, such as uh, craftiness, or adulterating the word, or... uh, uh, not making it straightforward and clear, that would be 
the equivalent of veiling it. Okay? So in any way that we are less than straightforward, less than clear, less than honest, less than accurate in our proclamation of the gospel, we're guilty of veiling what God has chosen to unveil. Because it's for everyone to see. And the only thing that should possibly veil it is the, the spiritual blindness of the hearers that's caused by Satan. But uh, may it never be that the veiling is caused by the preacher. All right? Now, as I, I was down in Iowa Friday and came back Saturday for family reunion, but late Friday night I spent a couple more hours reading. I'm trying to get through the, the truth for I can only read stuff that I want to read kind of late at night or spare time or whatever because all my other time I have to be researching stuff to write or researching stuff to speak or whatever. So, so this is like fun reading for me, reading MacArthur. And that book, The Truth War, is so fabulous. And he was talking about this very thing, okay? Is that what's going on in, in, in the evangelical movement is literally a veiling of the gospel. Because anytime we change the terms, try to make it funny, might try to make it uh, entertaining, try to make it appealing to the unregenerate mind, we're guilty of veiling the gospel. And so... Uh, this is something that Paul would never do. And MacArthur in his book talks about preaching ourselves. Isn't that the worst topic anybody could ever choose for a sermon? <laughs> uh, depressing topic, self is. But, but Christ is, is great. So we need to follow, take heed. Now let's unpack these passages uh, and carefully. I've done a bunch of study in the Greek and want to make sure we understand these. Verses. Therefore, since we have this ministry, uh, and again, going back to the new covenant ministry that we read about in chapter 3, we, as we've received mercy. Now, Paul, in, in this chapter 3 and chapter 4, just behind the scenes and everything he's saying is kind of an autobiographical statement. All right, You can see it. You really could read Acts chapter 9 and see a little bit what Paul's talking about. Because previously, Paul was one who was blinded uh, spiritually. Okay? And he was one who was an enemy of the gospel. And he was the one who was on his mission to fight Christians and Christianity. And when the light of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself confronted Paul, and uh, he went from being spiritually blind to physically blind. Remember the story in Acts 9? And then God sent Ananias to pray for him. And so Paul describes that as, as we've received mercy. So Paul, one who had been walking in darkness, receiving mercy, seeing the light of the glory of Christ, literally, as Christ appeared to him, is one who always understood himself to be a recipient of mercy. And certainly that's true for every Christian. We've all received mercy, but... Paul, it's, it really stands out because he was such a violent enemy of Christianity. So he, that's why he called himself a chief of sinners. And he, he really souls the mercy of God, that God would have forgiven him and shown him mercy. And so having been one who received mercy from the Lord himself, he doesn't lose heart. Now, the word for lose heart... Um, um, <coughs> Egkageo means not being cowardly or 
not shrinking back, or not timid, not timid. So, Paul, as the preacher of the New Covenant, who was continually being attacked by enemies, is not cowardly, not shrinking back, not timid. And we might point out that earlier in chapter 3, Paul said that he had great paresia, boldness. And that's a word I've been talking about quite a bit. Paresia means boldness or openness or confidence. So if he did have, did lose heart, it would be the opposite of that. But he doesn't lose heart, so he's, he's bold, he's confident, he's forthright about what he preaches. He's not cowardly, not shrinking back, not timid. And this, I think, is a role model for all New Covenant ministry. This same should be true for all of us concerning our uh, commitment to the gospel and our willingness to share it. It is hard to be this way other than the work of grace by the Spirit. And whether you're just talking to a relative or you're talking to strangers on the street or you're preaching to an auditorium full of people, it's still the same issue. Okay? It's, it's, it's more... Uh, Thinking again the other night as I was reading MacArthur and my heart was just bursting with excitement to hear him speaking the truth so forthrightly in that book. Um, it's, it's, it's always more pleasant to, to, for people to accept you than to reject you. Okay? It's always more desirable to be loved than to be hated. And it's always uh, hard to tell somebody what you know they don't want to hear. It's not a role that anybody tends to want. Uh, and so the gospel is always putting us in the position of telling people what they don't want to hear. Because people don't want to hear that they're lost, that they're, sinner, that they're sinners, that there is a hell, and that they're so drastically wicked that Jesus had to die for their sins to avert God's wrath against their sins. But that's the liberating message. That's the unveiled gospel. That's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the power of God to everyone who believes, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he's, it's, 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 he's saying that uh, there's all kinds of forces that would want us to make us ashamed of the gospel. We just can't be. We have to be forthright and open. And I think the thing that helps that for me and probably nothing really turned my life around more than the first time I taught through the book of Romans. But when I found out that salvation was of God, you'd think everybody would know that, but I didn't. I used to think that salvation was a cooperative effort between God and man, and the most important part was man's part. So then you spend all your time trying to motivate man to do something so that God could possibly work. When I found out that it was of God, it's a lot easier to be bold. Because God's going to do it anyhow. If they get mad at me, I, that's not the end of the world. Okay, yeah. I think of the uh, verse in First um, Peter chapter two that talks about, um, you know, being a um, chosen and stone it. and chosen people. Second, um, excuse me, First Peter chapter two verse nine. It says, "But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people." And I think there's another translation that says, "His peculiar people." Yeah, the King James. Yeah that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, and who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained okay. mercy. 
So it's mercy that we became a people of God. That's a good cross-reference. Let me, let's hand out a few more cross-references here. Um, and then I've got a citation also. Um, okay, Dan- Daniel, uh, 1 Timothy 1.13, Judith, Isaiah 40, 30 and 31, Dick, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Joanne, Galatians 6.9, and Robert, Ephesians 3, 7 and 8, and Larry, 2 Thessalonians 3.13, Lois, Hebrews 12.3, and Beverly, Revelation 2 and verse 3. Okay, 1 Timothy 1.13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Yeah, that's what we were talking about earlier. Paul, Paul was a blasphemer and a violent persecutor, but he was shown mercy. Exactly. And then um, he, uh, Isaiah 40, 30 and 31. Though youths grow weird or weary and tired and vigorous young men stumbling, stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Okay, now that's a reference to that last phrase, we do not lose heart. So those who wait for the Lord are the ones that don't lose heart. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? You get your special word and you see it over and over until your mind goes blank? No, that, that's not the right answer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's what some people are saying. Now, um, uh, Brian Flynn and I are, uh, you know, if you, if you, have you ever heard the radio show that Brian and I do on OnePlace.com right now? We're doing a series of 16 radio shows uh, based on his book, and we're getting kind of towards the end of it, but there's some back in the archives. And, and it's interesting how many times we keep going back to this where the people that are teaching mysticism are finding passages in the Old Testament where it basically says wait for the Lord or wait silently for the Lord. And they interpret that along the lines of transcendental meditation, that you need to silence the mind so that you can hear God. But it's really, there's not a single one of those passages that actually means that. Now, when... When, for example, there's a bunch of passages in Isaiah, including the one that Judith just read, where it discusses the idea of waiting for the Lord. Now, in Isaiah, uh, I think if you go earlier into chapter 30, you can find out what their temptation was, uh, and so that we can understand what waiting for the Lord means. Isaiah chapter, well, I'm hoping I'm thinking this, remembering correctly. No, 31. Well, both, actually, 30 and 31 both say the same thing. In 30, it says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, who make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, who take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Um, Then it says uh, they won't listen to God. And then it goes on to say uh, in verse 30, chapter 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt and rely on horses and chariots and so on. Because see, God had sent authoritative prophets to speak to the kings of Israel, Isaiah being one, to tell them what the issues were and why they were in trouble. And the issue was almost always the same thing, idolatry. Or So if they, were, if they forsake the Lord, they get into trouble, and the Assyrians or other nations were threatening them. 
So what was going on was that rather than waiting for the Lord, which would mean to repent and trust God to protect them, they thought, well, we're gonna, if we make an alliance with Egypt, Egypt will help us defeat our enemies. So they had the alternative of waiting for God or going down to Egypt and making a deal that God told them not to make. So when it says those who wait for the Lord will rise up and will run and not grow weary, it means to rely on the Lord in faith, not to silence the mind. Okay, yes. Uh, oh, Robert. I was uh, going through uh, David's Psalm of Repentance the other day, and it says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And it got me to thinking, well, in Pentecost Sunday is when the Holy Spirit came down, and now as, as believers, true believers, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that was not the case in Old Testament times. But yet, you think of the Holy Spirit as coming down in the New Testament, but he, the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament also, of course, in the Old Covenants. And um, so my point is, is that you would, in the Old Covenant days, have to wait upon the Lord because the, the Holy Spirit would descend upon the prophets at certain times and give them words. So you would have to wait upon the Lord to hear through the prophets what the Lord wants to communicate to that, you. That's a good point, and that's also in there. And so they had authoritative prophets that would tell them what the Lord wanted them to do. So they have to wait for that. But in the New Covenant, we all have the Holy Spirit, and the Word's already been given. We have the, the whole Bible. Now, a, a, a person out on the East Coast uh, was contending with one of her relatives who was, who was into this contemplative spirituality, just along the lines of what we're talking about, and she was asking me for help. And, so, and this guy said, it, it, because he has the Holy Spirit, he can go anywhere and do anything, and what he'll hear is the Lord. He literally said, I could go into a Buddhist temple where they're doing TM, and if I went in there, what I'd have is the Holy Spirit, if I did the same things they did. So, so what he was claiming is that methods are neutral, and we can use any method whatsoever, and if we're a Christian, what we end up re- doing is hearing from the Holy Spirit, even if we use transcendental meditation, much less a Christian version of it. And... and and so the point was we're not satisfied with what God has said. Now, the authoritative prophet, now you're, no, you're right, Rick. So they had an authoritative prophet, and God would speak to Jeremiah, Isaiah, whoever, and that was their word, right? Well, who's the authoritative prophet of the new covenant? Jesus Christ. And has he spoken? Yes. So anyhow, I wrote to this, uh, I wrote back, and I said, well, let's just make this real simple. Prayer is us talking to God. The Bible is God talking to us. Is that simple enough? Okay. I'm not the authoritative prophet. So whatever idea comes to my mind, I can't authoritatively say that's God. Okay. So prayer is us talking to God. So waiting on the Lord is, you know, does it apply in a new covenant? Well, yes. Absolutely. Waiting on the Lord would be not going off and taking brass. Uh, or uh, silly action in a state of panic because you feel like you've got to do something rather than bringing your need to the Lord in prayer and trusting Him. Okay? Because we can still do the same thing. Uh, Luann. Well, I was just going to say that we came from a church where everyone, well, I can only speak for myself, where you just wanted to be used by God. And so you volunteered for all these different programs because God's going to use you in one of those programs. 
you know, and pretty soon you are just burnt out. You're just weary and tired because you have been in every single program and you still feel like you're in the same place. Okay, just trying to do programs rather than what we know God wants us to do. Uh, Bill, back there. By the way, I, I thought about uh, uh, Greg and Luann. We, I, yesterday I was driving through uh, St. Peter and I saw a sign that says Little Center and there was a bridge going across there. <laughs> I was wondering how far you were from there. <laughs> 12, miles. 12 miles. I think I got here about an hour and 15 after I was at that spot. Is that it? Okay. Yeah. You, you had mentioned uh, that the uh, effects or methodology is neutral, and as long as we do it in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, it'll be okay. Yeah. That's the mindset of some of these people. That's got a historical background uh, of the belief that all these supposed things like, you know, sorcery and divination and all that were uh, originally uh, gifts that Adam had and that the devil somehow got a hold of them and tainted them. So in the process of recovery, you can take those things, re-Christianize them, yeah. and then undo the fall. Yeah, I've heard that before, too, that everything in the occult is just a counterfeit, so we've got to find the real version of it, uh, and, and which kind of opens the door to anything. All right, let's, what was your passage, Dick? Do you still remember? Corinthians 4.16. Okay, read it. 2 Corinthians 4.16. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Okay, that's toward the end of this chapter. Paul's going to talk about because we have this ministry of the New Covenant ministry of the gospel, we don't lose heart. And so that's, he he says in Verse 1, we do not lose heart, and then he brings that up again in verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Even though the outer man is decaying day by day. Can anybody say amen? amen. <laughs> I, was, I was at a family reunion yesterday, and they had all the pictures out, and I was sitting with my cousins. We, we kind of all knew each other, we were growing up as cousins, because we were all being raised either in Iowa or Nebraska. And... They were flipping back 94, 90, all these different family reunions. And one of my cousins looked in there and looked at it and says, you know, none of us are aging too gracefully. <laughs> the, the outer man is indeed decaying day by day. I can see visual proof of that when I look at his pictures. <laughs> okay, the next verse was uh, Galatians, uh, Galatians 6, 9. 9. Yeah, okay. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we... Do not grow weary. Oh, do not lose. That's that same word there, ekageo. Do not lose heart or do not be cowardly or shrink back or timid. So don't lose heart in doing good. Why would somebody lose heart in doing good? Yeah, because you don't see it doing any good. Have you ever, you know, I've heard people say this many times since I've been in the ministry. No matter how hard I work, no matter how much I do, or no matter how many good things I try to do, it doesn't pay off. It's just frustrating, and there's nothing good coming back to me. And that's often true. We live in a fallen world. And some people have it worse than we do. How would you like to be Jeremiah? Spend your whole life preaching the truth of God, and it doesn't do any good to anybody then alive, because none of them listen to him. It only is doing good now to us reading the Bible. So uh, don't, don't lose heart in doing good. And losing heart means to grow timid or to shrink back. So in other words, don't think it's not worth it. Because we're doing this for the Lord. Right? And the Lord will 
uh, use our doing good as he sees fit. Uh, over to Sam and then to Brian. If you, if you lose heart, you'll wind up doing what uh, the, um, uh, the people did when Moses was up on the mountain and they cast uh, golden calves because they lost heart. They didn't have the patience to wait, uh, patiently to wait faithfully for God. Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. I was, I, was uh, I, I wrote that to somebody in an email because they were trying to know why people go into these um, alternative spiritualities who are Christians. And I, and I said, uh, it's very much like the book of Hebrews. I think every Christian owes it to his or herself to do a thorough study of the book of Hebrews. Probably sooner rather than later. And uh, because the temptation for apostasy that was coming upon them is no different than what comes upon anybody anywhere. Only the difference would be what it looks like. Their temptation was to go back to temple worship. Why? It's it's the same thing. It's always a failure of faith. Why did they want to go back? Because they can't see Jesus. All right? Jesus went into heaven just like Moses went up on the mountain. All right, Moses went on the mountain. They said, "We don't. Where did Moses go? We can't follow him. We can't. He's 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 gone. So make us something we can see." So they make a golden calf. Now, in the in the the argument that I, and I think you've heard me say this before, and we, Brian and I have used these in, in our seminars, is this argument is this: what the Hebrews wanted to go back to at one time was valid. At one time, the high priest was ordained by God. At one time, the Day of Atonement was ordained by God. At one time, the temple and the holiest place in the temple was ordained by God. At one time, God would receive the blood of bulls and goats offered according to the stipulations of the Old Covenant and forgive their sins because they did this in faith and in obedience. And if something that at one time was from God and was ordained by God would constitute utter apostasy and the permanent loss of salvation if you went back to it, which it says in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, and Hebrews 12, how much more is it utter apostasy to go to something God never ordained? Like transcendental meditation. That's what I wrote to that lady to share with her friend that was going into this. And if it's apostasy to go to the... Why did they want to go? Why would you want to go back to that? Because it was, you could see it. It's tangible. The high priest had his garb, and it was, there he was. The temple was there. You could go touch it and look at it. The high priest was real. You could talk to him. The blood could be seen. And all of these things that, that are described in the book of Hebrews that are the new covenant realities for us, they're all unseen. The blood shed once for all, unseen. The high priest is unseen. The sanctuary is unseen. The spirits of righteous men made perfect, unseen. Myriads of angels, unseen. So therefore, faith is the evidence of things not seen. And, and rather than believing Jesus went into heaven, people are opting for something like seeing is believing. I want a Jesus who comes into my subconscious mind and talks to me. I call that apostasy. I, I think it's nothing less than utter apostasy because it's a failure of faith. Okay, go ahead. Well, you stole some of my thunder, but uh, I couldn't have done it so eloquently. I was going <laughs> to... Well, I'm sure you could. <laughs> no, I was going to... Actually, I was going to reference Hebrews, but that was one of the big lessons we learned from Hebrews was uh, perseverance and that you know we would all have things like that happen throughout our walk with Christ and... 
it's those who keep their eye on the finish line. So. Amen. That's in Hebrews 12. Perseverance is a very important thing in Hebrews. So please, uh, if, by the way, if you missed that, those three years that we went through Hebrews, it's all on our website. You can still study it. Okay, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say that the burden for, to remain uh, persevering and to not lose heart and to grow timid does not rest solely upon the individual. And in Hebrews, it addresses that we are to um, encourage one another, especially as we see that day growing Amen. near to the coming of Christ and the danger of apostasy is there, but we each have a part in contributing to the welfare of one another in that we encourage and love one another. Um, it's impossible. We're human beings. We do get discouraged, and that's where the word encouragement and love one another, you know, that those concepts are to be applied for that very purpose. You know, we're to strengthen and encourage one another. You're right, Coralie. It does say that. Encourage one another, and mainly because we see the day growing near. Okay, now you had a passage. You've been so patient. What is it, Robert? Forgotten. No. <laughs> Patience, perseverance. Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 7 and 8, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Wow. That's a cross-reference to the idea that having found mercy. God found mercy and he has given, uh, Paul found mercy from God and he was given the greatest privilege and that was to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable uh, riches of Christ. What a, what a glorious thing. Yes, uh, your passage. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Second Thessalonians 3. Yeah, do not grow weary in doing good. Is that what it says? Right. Okay, so that's more than one place where it says that. That's another cross-reference to that word, ekageo, about not being timid or shrinking back or growing weary. Hebrews 12.3, Lois? For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Okay, so there. Are, so if we don't want to grow weary, one thing we could do is consider Jesus, who endured the hostility of sinners against himself. In other words, he patiently endured the mocking, the beating, the cruel uh, things that happened to him, and he did so in order to bring many sons to glory. Okay, so that's Hebrews, Hebrews 12. And Coralie, you were mentioning that. Hebrews telling us to be encouraged. And then the next verse here was Revelation 2.3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. <laughs> okay, so there's a church that persevered and did not grow weary. So may the Lord grant us perseverance. So that no longer, no long, no matter how long the battle rages, and no matter how dark the days we end up living in, in the last days, that we don't grow weary, as far as faithfully providing the means of grace, encouraging one another, fellowshipping around the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, and the things that God has given Christians to do. The way they persevered in the first century is the same way we're going to persevere in the 21st century. Uh, by those means of grace that God's given us. I have a little summary uh, before the fact here from Barnett, a commentary by Paul Barnett. 
In the present paragraph, Paul's own story can be traced. He had been an unbeliever, blinded to the light of of the gospel, verse 4. On the road to Damascus, however, Paul had seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, verses 4 and 6. Having given him the ministry of the new covenant, God showed him mercy, illuminating his heart that he might give the light of the knowledge of God to others, verses 1 and 6. And proclaiming the word of God, the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord, Paul sets forth the truth, verses 2, 4, and 5, and he does so as their slave, literally, for Jesus' sake. He was a bondservant. We preach not ourselves, but, our, but, but Jesus Christ and us as your servants. So, the ministry of the gospel is not the message. Jesus is the message. The minister is to be a bondservant. And we did not make up the message. It was given to us by God. We have no right to alter the message. We have no right to adulterate the message. We have no right to embellish the message. We have no calling other than to faithfully proclaim what God has said and to do so with authority, clarity, and applying these things to the lives of each of us by God's grace. So having said that, let's go to verse 2 here, where it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, but we have renounced, okay? We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, literally in the Greek it says the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. If I was, I don't, certainly not enough of a Greek scholar to ever be a translator, but if I was one, I would get these definite articles in there when they belong there. And one of my beefs with almost every English translation is the leaving out of definite articles when they're important. Okay? Uh, and in this case, uh, the reason is there, the faith, is because when we talk about faith in the anarthrus or the construction without the definite article, not always, but generally, the context could still tell us uh, the meaning, obviously, but generally, faith is what we have. In other words, subjective faith is what a person has. In other words, my faith, my trust, my hope in God is faith. But when it talks about the faith, it's talking about the content of the message. All right? And uh, in the same way with truth, and I was looking this up in uh, Dana and Manti's Greek, Greek manual grammar of the Greek New Testament, and they pointed out that, for example, the word truth, uh, aletheia, if you just have that word in general, it may be anything that has the character of veracity, anything that would be the way it really is. But when you add the definite article to this uh, Now, truth, the truth, Dean and Manny says, then what it means is anything in in accordance with the revelation that we have in Christ Jesus. What God has spoken. That's the truth. So here, when it's talking about the truth, it's talking about the revelation that we have in the New Covenant. Yes. Just for uh, everyone's sake, can you just define definite article when you talk about that? Well, definite article would be our word, the um, the, for example, uh, the faith is uh, the, uh, the uh, word faith with the definite article. Just faith is the, what they call anarthrous construction 
without the definite article. Okay? Now, I know some of this is just for smoothness of reading, and we tend to, in English, probably just use the word faith or truth. But the Greek has it, and I think when there's a theological reason for it, I wish they would put it in. But it's my job to tell you about it, so you get to, get to know. So, yes? Okay, what's the difference between faith and the faith? The faith is the content of what we believe, the objective, what we, as the object of our faith, the content. Faith is what we have subjectively. I have faith. That's an arthrus. The faith is the content of what I believe. How about truth and the truth? Well, uh, truth would be something that is as it really is. Something having the characteristic of veracity. The truth is something that's been revealed by Jesus Christ. Now, I'm saying that as a generalization, and I got that from Dana and Manti. There are exceptions. You have to always look at context. Because, for example, the Jehovah's Witness try to uh, fool people because they say, you know, in other words, Hatheos, the God, is, is, is God specifically, whereas a God would be an Arthras. And so they see God, an Arthras, in John 1.1 1, 1, and try to say that it's, Jesus is a God, not the God. But then there, there's, uh, if, you, if you read the Greek scholars, they point out that they're an error in that regard and they tell, tell them why. So it isn't 100%. Rule, yes. Well, I just, the, the faith that I have, is that like just, uh, you know, when I turn the key, the car is going to start? I have faith in that? Or well, no, it's what I mean by subjective is this. A person, the faith is what it is, whether anybody believes it or not. Okay? The Bible talks about the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. This is never going to change. It is what it is. If only one person in history, or maybe nobody ever believed it, it'd still be the faith. Okay? I believe in objectivity. And, uh, but personal faith is when somebody puts their trust in what is the faith. So, me believing is faith, my faith. The faith is what I believe in. I believe is true, but belief needs a true object. So, uh, you remember the old song, I believe that for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows? There you go. Doesn't that warm your heart? <laughs> and now I'm not going to sing it. No, no, no. Not going to happen. I believe. I remember one time, Todd Friel is so funny. Some years ago, he was, he was playing a, a, an audio of Robert Schuller singing a bunch of serpy, silly foolishness at the dedication of something. And while Schuler was speaking, Todd Friel starts singing that song over Schuler. I believe. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Uh, so, so uh, let's look at it this way: you, a, a person can put faith in something that's a lie. You could, you could. What was that cult that uh, put faith in the Hale Bop comet? Remember that? They had a suicide cult that they were going to go to the Hale Bop. Right. Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate. Brian Flynn uses that as an illustration when he was witnesses to New Agers. Because his New Age friends, or his older New Age friends, would say, um, they, they would say, well, anybody, whatever you believe, that's your faith and that's your reality. And, and people can believe whatever they want. 
So Brian says, okay, let's say you had a brother that joined Heaven's Gate and had faith that if he committed suicide with everybody else, he'd go to the hail bop thing. Would that be okay? Would you say your brother has the right to do that and you, and you wouldn't try to change it? Well, then they're in a dilemma because they, they, they'd have to say, no, I wouldn't want my brother to believe that. So what he does is he tries to disprove their premise that all faith is valid no matter what object it has. Because there are some things you believe in that are damnable or poisonous or harmful. Okay, So belief is something that a person has, but all faith has to have some object. So what is a saving faith is the object is the truth of Jesus Christ who died for sins once for all. And a person who puts their trust in Jesus as Savior, then their faith is in the faith, and that is saving faith. Does that make sense? See, you went to church and you heard about definite articles. Lucky you. Okay, Gretchen. Yeah, just to tie that up, uh, I'm old enough to have had English teachers, and we went along with our English teachers, and we studied studied Latin. And it's not like Greek or anything else. It's, yeah, but it's similar. a definite article is a specific. And what I've learned now, um, I'll just try not to be too circuitous, going around in circles, is that in my previous church, which is a blessed church, they acknowledge Jesus, all of this. I was baptized there as an adult. An adult. But a lot of my friends there would give me little greetings of Bible verses to encourage me. And one lady in particular, she would substitute Gretchen's or this or that. But what the definite article does, as I'm learning here, and it it isn't putting me down for being uh, responsible for my study of the Bible, but I'm finding out from you folks I have to study the Bible to know the reality of what God means. And it's exciting in the sense of God is real. And all this stuff, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a recovering alcoholic. My mind's mixed up. It happens with anyone, whether you have addictions or not. There is a reality that's outside the mind, and that's what we're searching to learn in the, in the Scriptures. That's what I believe. Yeah, you're right. See, our faith is in something outside of ourselves. Now, the, the worst bad advice that everybody seems to give, have you, I don't know if you've heard this, I'm sure you have, if you've read the advice columns. You need to believe in yourself. <laughs> have you ever heard of a more uh, flawed object of faith? <laughs> okay, uh, Rick. <laughs> Loved ones, this is nothing new. In Genesis 3, the first thing that the serpent does as he interfaces with human beings is say, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And that is not at all what God said, as uh, many of you know. Um, So the first thing he did as he comes on the scene is he twists the word of God. And... Isn't that what the Koran does? It takes the word of God and it yeah. twists it every which way. Yeah. And the woman replied to the serpent and said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now notice here, loved ones, that 
the woman, the first thing that she does, Eve, is add to the word of God because God never said to her, nor shall you touch it. And think of all the things that are adding to the word of God today. Look at the very last paragraph of the Bible that says, if you do that, the plagues contained here in this book shall be added to these people. The book of Mormon is a complete addition to the word of God. Okay, so this is nothing new. Saying that you need theophosics or saying that you believe and trust and repent of your sins and all of a sudden you're going to get rich or saying that you need contemplative prayer to make yourself whole or all of these other things is just adding to the word of God. And then it goes on to say that, uh, you know, that the serpent goes on to say that uh, you shall surely not die if you eat of this fruit. So that's a flat out denial of the word of God. Okay, so now we enter into atheism. Etc., etc., etc. Yeah. And then not only that, he says, You shall be like God. Right? So n- now he's taking God away as the object of faith and making self the object of faith. You become God. Okay? So instead of believing in God, you believe in self. And so as our passage says here, Paul says, We preach not ourselves. Um, uh, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in our verse here, verse 2, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness. Craftiness is what? An illusion of what you were saying, Rick. The garden, the serpent was crafty. Uh, craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, the sight of God. In other words, um, rather than letters of commendation, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 1, we didn't bring letters of commendation but the thing that commended Paul and his apostolic contemporaries to them was the fact that they preached the truth and they actually lived it out in their own lives. Okay? So they commended themselves not as the, what their message was of self, and the message was the truth, but they, they preached the truth and then they lived accordingly. So, so as not to, by hypocrisy, bring any tainting to the true message. Um, I just can't recommend this enough. Uh, if, if you have not read John MacArthur's book, The Truth War, you are missing out. Okay? You are missing out. I think that this is his finest work. Yes. Many people are trying to tell us that if we just have faith, we will end up in heaven. If we just believe in God and all roads lead to heaven. All ways to God are the okay. same. And it's the faith that will lead us. Yeah, the, yeah. it's very popular to say all paths lead to God. And you probably heard, I think we were talking about this, that on the radio, Brian and I said, it's true, all paths do lead to God. Either to the great white throne judgment where you're assigned into the lake of fire or to the judgment seat of Christ where you're rewarded for deeds done in the body. But all, all paths do lead to God. Now, the question is, some of those paths that lead to the great white throne judgment is not where you want to go. So you better find out what the narrow one is that leads to the judgment seat of Christ, which is where you want to appear. Okay? So, uh, boy, there's so much in this. Let's just start breaking it out here. We have renounced um, uh, the hidden things. Okay? Um, Paul believes in openness. He says that we have great boldness, parousia, openness, confidence, 
clear, straightforward proclamation of the truth. Nobody has to be wondering, what is this Paul's gospel? What does he believe? Everybody that heard him knew exactly what he was preaching because he was forthright, he was clear, it was understandable. Now, this is one of the things that's going on with the truth war. The obscuring of the word to try to say, well, nobody can know what the Bible means. And uh, we, we have a mentally constructed reality. Have you heard of that? Mental constructs of reality. And uh, living in this mentally constructed reality, you have your truth, I have mine. Then, then they throw in linguistics uh, and you get this haze. Hazy, 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 hazy. But Paul believes in openness. He, things that are hidden or things that are hazy, as far as Paul is concerned, are not worthy to be called gospel or to be uh, preached. So if you can't understand the word, then don't get in the pulpit and preach it. <laughs> All right? Keep studying until you do understand it and then, and then proclaim it. Um, Nate, you know what? The sad thing is what I'm seeing is just exactly what I was taught in Bible college. And anybody would have agreed with. In 1973, I don't know anybody in an evangelical seminary or Bible college or church who wouldn't just fully agree. No problem. Uh, uh, Reverend Snow that I had and uh, uh, Phillips, Reverend Phillips, my teachers. Uh, I think Snow was the one who said this. He had so many gems, words of wisdom. He says... When you're preaching on Sunday, he's talking to us young men going into ministry. He said, when, you, when you're going to get in a pulpit and preach on Sunday, you study that passage that you're preaching on so well that if a Ph.D. in New Testament or biblical uh, studies happened to be traveling through town, happened to be stopping in at your church, and having to sit in the pew where you're preaching that Sunday, on that passage, you're the best expert in the room that day. Because you have focused your study on the passage that you're preaching, and nobody's going to know it better than you do. Now, that's just what they taught me. You know, now, what do they teach? The, the, let's fast forward 30, what, how many years this has been? Yeah, 34 years, fast forward. You go into the seminary, and you can ask Eric Dauma. Uh, I don't see him here today, but he was in seminary and experienced this. And their book on hermeneutics was teaching this deconstruction, mentally, socially constructed reality, and nobody could know what the passage means. So now you go, the same young men are being told that when they get into the pulpit, it's hopeless. You can't know. You can't know what it means. You don't know what it means, but don't worry. Nobody out there does either, so they can't correct you. Now, just, okay, just very simply, just ask yourself this. Is this so hard to understand, this passage we're studying? It says, we renounce things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adultering, but by manifestation of the truth. Nobody, there's no way to deny that Paul believed that you could know the truth. And you can't deny that Paul believed that you could preach the truth. And you can't deny that Paul believed that he was preaching the truth. So the only thing you can deny was that Paul was right or inspired by the Holy Spirit. In which case, you're just denying the Bible. But if Paul is correct about this, then who are we to say, because we live in the 21st century, we can't know? 
And if we can't know, we can't proclaim. And if we can't proclaim, all we can do is share a religious experience that can't be defined. Yes? Well, if you decide that you're going to deny that what Paul preached was the truth, then you're actually denying Christ because he said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth. I know. And, and Jesus said when he prayed, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is true. So uh, get the book, The Truth War. I bet you if you write MacArthur, I'll send you one if you don't have the money. He usually will. And you'll, you'll be protecting yourself against the lies of post-modernity. I was going to quote... <laughs> Let me quote uh, Garland. You know, the, the, irony, the irony of this whole obscurantist idea that nobody can know what it means, the irony is we've never had better tools to know. You know, it's every, every week almost I get a, an email and I just get, I think people, you don't understand. They say, well, what? you should be preaching in the King James, otherwise you, otherwise you don't really have the truth. They, they don't, I got another one this week, and I, they, don't know, they don't know what I do and I don't have time to tell them. If they saw what I do, they say, well, no, it's the wrong Greek text. I can't go wrong because I got five or six Greek texts. I got Texas Receptus, I got Westcott Hort, I got Nessa Lalonde. Not only that, I can lay them all out on my computer screen side by side to see if there's any differences. And if there are any differences, I have critical commentaries by the top Greek New Testament that will explain the wording differences, which manuscripts they're in, what the different wordings are, and give you arguments about which one was probably the best reading. And I do all that on every verse that I preach. I look all these things up and look up every possible issue. Who cares if it's King James, New American Standard? That's not going to throw me off. Okay, so, gee, get rid of your... Quit sending me these stupid emails. Yeah, I'm going to make a statement on the website and say, go here. If they can come to my office and see what I do when I study every text, there's no way that Westcott and Hort took the gospel away from me. I'll preach the gospel right out of the Texas Receptus if they want it. So, so, so you're saying you agree wholeheartedly with, uh, with John MacArthur, but I, he quote, I, I copied a quote of his. He says, whoever knows the Bible best is the best defender of the faith. So you know, it's not just a specific book. It's knowing the Bible. Yes, that's true. And that's why we should study a, a whole lifetime, verse by verse by verse, through the entire Bible, so that somebody doesn't come along with some oddball theology that would just immediately throw us off course. And MacArthur, is, he can write a book like The Truth War because of 45 years of teaching verse by verse by verse through the Bible. That's, that's how he became the person that he is. And I, I regret... I regret that I wasted so much time that I didn't start doing that until 1983. Uh, so I wasted about 10 years fishing around in religious experiences before I decided to start teaching verse by verse through the Bible. But I started in, in 83, so I don't know if I'll ever live long enough to catch up to MacArthur, but I'll, I'm working on it. You're working too hard, Bob. You know, you can just download your sermons off the uh, internet. Pastors.com. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the guy, the guy with the story, the pastor had four straight sermons on butterflies. Yeah, four straight sermons on butterflies, a whole month, sermons on butterflies. So he finally went to the pastor and said, he can't think, you know, I don't think this pastor is clever enough to think of four sermons on butterflies. So he went privately and said, where do you get those four sermons on butterflies? Pastors.com. Let me quickly quote Garland and we'll pick up on this verse next week. 
Um, uh, Garland says this, Those who act honorably, as Paul does, do not need to cloak their deeds in secrecy, but are open to the view of the entire world, Christian and non-Christian. Um, uh, second, he repudiates all deception. In other words, there's no secrecy. He has the truth. He repudiates all deception. And now in deception, translated Greek word, it literally means the readiness to do anything. <laughs> Panurgia. Deception is the readiness to do anything. Isn't that a good word to describe postmodernity? Pan, the word pan, you know, pan, pantheism, pan, whatever. And in a word for, for to do, orgia, panorgia. When used in a bad sense, it applies to someone who is sly, crafty, deceitful, and tricky. Such persons will stoop to any ruse to accomplish their dishonorable purposes, and they usually resort to secret plots and intrigues. In Second uh, uh, Corinthians 11:3, Paul connects this such cunning to Satan, who beguiled Eve. And the the word also occurs in 1 Corinthians 3:19. So uh, worldly shrewdness offers only fleeting success, and will eventually ensnare the clever in their own tangled web of deceit. The deceiver is the opposite of someone who's candid and forthright. So that's an interesting. Translation of the word deception, panorgia, willingness to do anything. The idea is whatever it takes to get my desired outcome. Outcome-based religion. <laughs> you heard that one before. Okay, well, we just kind of scratched the surface on this wonderful verse here. So uh, we'll pick up again on this next week, Second Corinthians 2, 4. And I think you can't find a verse that's more applicable to the times that we're living in. Uh, We'll see you upstairs in about a half hour.